You're listening to Behind the Scene at NTSB. My name is Leah Walton. And I'm Stephanie Shaw. Thank you for joining us as we talk with the people and learn more about the work being done here at NTSB. Welcome to episode 28 of Behind the Scene at NTSB. Today, Leah and I are excited to be joined by Dr. Chris Poland, the Deputy Director of our Office of Highway Safety, and Cheryl Harley, a highway crash investigator, also in our Office of Highway Safety, to talk about some of our recent school bus investigations, the very exciting topic of seatbelts on school buses, and some other issues that we have raised recently through our crash investigations. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Good. Um, With all of our podcasts, as you've probably heard and our listeners are accustomed to, we allow an opportunity for our guests to give a little bit of a background on how they got themselves to the the NTSB. So I'd like to ask, I'm going to start with Dr. Chris Poland, um, how you arrived at NTSB. So I came to the NTSB about 21 years ago, Mm -hmm. and I started in our Office of Research and Engineering as a biomechanical engineer. I was fortunate to start at the NTSB straight out of graduate school. I got my PhD in biomechanical engineering and applied to a job and was very fortunate that they saw the potential in me and Mm -hmm. took the risk of hiring somebody directly out of school. And I have enjoyed the job ever since. I've worked multimodally when I was in the Office of Research and Engineering and a little over two years ago got the opportunity to move to our Office of Highway Safety in a leadership role Mm -hmm. and very much enjoy seeing the investigative side from a modal office specifically. Sure. But you were on detail for a little while at a different agency, correct? Uh, That's correct. Yes. I got an opportunity almost 10 years ago to work in the human injury lab at the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, or NHTSA, as many people know it. And that's where we met. Of course. Way back. (laughs) Yes, of course. So that was a unique opportunity to be able to see how the regulator does their work. And Mm -hmm. so we see that often from the NTSB side, Mm -hmm. but obviously we're, we're looking at that regulatory environment from post-crash events. What has happened that was bad and how could the regulatory environment change to improve those circumstances? Being at NHTSA for a period of time gave me the inside skinny on how they actually do their work and their processes. So that was was a great opportunity and I was happy to take that experience back to the NTSB and hopefully be more effective Mm -hmm. in the way that we then issue recommendations. Cool. Thanks. And Cheryl, would you mind giving a little background on you? Okay. Well, it's not as uh, stellar as Chris's. Oh, I don't know um, I say that. <laughs> let's see. I came to the NTSB in February of 2016 mm-hmm. after retiring for uh, 26 and a half years with the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C., wow. where I was a detective in the major crash unit which is the basically the vehicle homicide unit. Mm-hmm. I was also trained to do inspections and, uh, for the motor carrier unit as well. Before that, I spent seven and a half years as a career firefighter in Montgomery County. Mm-hmm. And I also spent four years uh, turning wrenches for the United States Navy on helicopters. Wow. So that would be me. A real slacker, right? Yeah. right. A real slacker. <laughs> <laughs> But you also have a multimodal background then. Uh, yes, I do. A little so bit. I've had the opportunity not only to work in the Office of Highway Safety, mm-hmm. but also to do some work in uh, the rail, in our rail oh, wow. pipeline and has material uh, office as well. Mm-hmm. So. That's right. Well, uh, this week is National School Bus Safety Week, and the theme this year is My Bus, My School Bus, 
the safest form of student transportation. School Bus Safety Week is a public education program hosted by, and I am going to spell all these out, the National Association of Pupil Transportation, or NAPT, the National School Transportation Association, NSTA, and the National Association of State Directors of Pupil Transportation Services, or NASDIPTS. And the, uh, the public education program is designed to promote school bus safety and engage with parents, students, teachers, motorists, school bus operators, school administrators, and other interested parties to address the importance of school bus safety. Before we get into talking about some of our school bus investigations um, and our recommendations, Chris, can you give us an idea of how many students are transported by school bus every day and what makes a school bus the safest form of transportation on our roads? Sure. So these are statistics that aren't kept by the NTSB. Mm-hmm. It, it's on to the some of the school bus associations, the um, American School Bus Council is the one that usually reports this, but we have more than 25 million students that are transported by school bus every day in the United States. So it's a huge number. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why school bus transportation, as we know, is the safest way for students to get to and from school Mm -hmm. is because of the number of regulations that surround school buses. So school buses have to be bright yellow. Mm -hmm. We know that there are large vehicles. They have required lighting systems on them. There are also very extensive requirements for how the bus is constructed, including roof strength. Mm -hmm. We know that there's a passive form of occupant protection on the bus. Mm -hmm. Many people know it as compartmentalization. And then there's other rules surrounding how people operate vehicles around the school bus. And of course, Cheryl is intimately familiar with this because we have an ongoing investigation Mm -hmm. along with two supporting investigations from Rochester, Indiana, dealing with the loading zone and and fatalities that were associated in the loading zone, unfortunately. But that's ongoing and hopefully something that NTSB will be able to bring out bring out next year. But as we said, school buses are the safest way to get to and from school or any school-related activity. And it's great because we have so many students that take that form of transportation. So that's awesome. So school bus safety has been an issue that NTSB has pretty much looked at since the NTSB was created. I know some of the first recommendations that we made were for improvements. Um, for school buses, things like crashworthiness, um, the way occupants are restrained or protected in school buses, even things like the noise canceling switches, um, <laughs> based on some of, I think, that came out of some of our rail highway kind of crash investigations. Um, why has it been such an, a focus area for for the agency? Well, I guess I, the first thing that I should point out is as I said, we know school buses are the safest way to and from school. And I think mm-hmm. some people get misled because we do investigate some of the most catastrophic school bus crashes, mm-hmm. but those are extremely rare. So on average, it's usually like five or six children that are killed in school bus crashes. That said, that in, inside of a school bus, inside of a school bus. Correct. Yeah, I think that's important to point but, out. But that said, That's too many. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the reason why NTSB is always interested in looking at school bus crashes, because we trust our children to get to and from school safely. Mm -hmm. And and that's a huge focus for for parents, for public education, and therefore it's a huge focus for the NTSB. We think that that's an area where we can get down to zero. We Mm -hmm. always talk about road to zero, trying to get to the fewest fatality numbers all the way down so that we don't have fatalities on our nation's roads. 
And school buses are already a very, very safe vehicle. And we think there's a couple key things that can be done to make it even safer so that we can avoid fatalities and hopefully serious injuries in the future. So one of the first questions that I get asked when I talk about school bus safety, um, and I want to get your answer for this, is why don't they have seatbelts on school buses? Well, obviously, that's a, that's a big question. And, it, and there's some misconception around that, too. So I want to get out that school buses are the safest way to get to and from school, whether they have seatbelts or not. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing more school buses that are being equipped with lap shoulder belts. That's mm-hmm. what we recommend for passenger seating positions. But to give you a little bit of the history, when school bus, when the design for school buses changed in 1977, they looked at a variety of ways to protect the occupants because they were seeing that the school buses weren't performing well. And there were a number of crashes, some of them grade crossing crashes, definitely like you mentioned, where you have a train that hits a school bus, catastrophic crashes. Mm-hmm. The bus body itself wasn't holding up. And then they were looking at more specific crashes where you might have a rollover, high-speed rollover. What's happening to the occupants? And in 1977, they passed regulations that were looking at side impact protection, rollover protection, and also a passive form of protection for the occupants. So in 77, we didn't have a lot of seatbelt use. Mm -hmm. And so it was looked at of like, if we put seatbelts on here, would students actually use them? And so at that time, based on the environment that we were dealing with and how prevalent seatbelt use was at that time, they looked at a passive form of protection. And when I say passive, that means that the student gets in the bus, sits down on a seat, and doesn't have to do anything else to be protected. Mm -hmm. So that's compartmentalization. That is the closely spaced energy-absorbing seats. And those seats have those closely spaced seatbacks. So in a frontal crash, occupant travels forward and quickly impacts that seat back in front with their knees, their chest, their head. They distribute the forces over a larger area of their body. Mm-hmm. And that seat back is designed to deform as well. So that's great. In frontal crashes, we see a lot of benefit of compartmentalization. But what we've seen in some of the catastrophic crashes that we have looked at recently is that in side impact crashes, extreme side impact crashes with like an equally heavy vehicle, like a a tractor trailer or Mm -hmm. a dump truck, or in high-speed rollover crashes, the occupants are traveling either laterally or up and down out of that seating compartment, either during the crash forces, during the maneuvering before a crash, or during the crash forces, and then they're not getting that protection. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we go towards lap shoulder belts, providing the optimal protection for students. Which the idea of the seatbelt is that it would keep them in that compartment space so that there there are things that were already designed into the school bus seat to help protect them as well. Yeah, I'll put in a plug for our video. We have a video that talks about school bus (laughs) safety. And in that video, there's a really nice uh, graphic that Mm -hmm. Leah put together that shows an egg crate. And so it's talking about how compartmentalization provides kind of some protection front and back. But if we can keep the occupants within their compartment with the lap shoulder belt, Mm -hmm. then it's basically like closing the lid on that egg crate. We're Mm -hmm. giving them the total protection so that during any pre-crash maneuvering, they're staying within their seating compartment. And then they have the benefit of that belt system and the compartment during any crash forces. So that's the best protection in all crash scenarios. Sure, sure. And when did we first make the recommendation for the lap and shoulder belts on school buses? Ah, good question. Many people are confused about this. Mm -hmm. So we had kind of a landmark report that we did in 1999, occupant protection, bus crash worthiness, Mm -hmm. bus, um, bus safety. And in that report we recommended occupant protection systems. So some people think, eh, 
That's not lap shoulder belts. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why it's a little bit ambiguous is because when we were making that recommendation back in 1999, so we're kind of talking like the environment that was happening at the time. So we talked about 77, what the environment was for how many people use seatbelts in 1977. In 1999, what we were seeing was a number of belt systems that were being installed in school buses, as well as some other crazy type designs. Like, I remember one person had the equivalent of like the old fashioned roller coaster bar that right. would come down. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, yeah. So, <laughs> they meant so, well, but not necessarily the so, best safety device. So, what we were seeing was like lap belts that weren't well designed, mm-hmm. that were riding up on the student's abdomen, lap shoulder belts that were just like a wrap over over the top of the seat back. And so at that time, we felt like there wasn't a type of seatbelt system that we could recommend that would provide optimal protection. And in fact, in some cases, we were concerned that Mm -hmm. if you had one of those poorly designed systems, that you might actually have some different type of injury than you would have if you just had compartmentalization alone on the system. So at that time, we said develop an occupant protection system that addresses all those crash scenarios that we talked about and the ones that NTSB is investigating. We recommend it to NHTSA. Do that work. Figure out what the answer is. In response to that recommendation in 99, NHTSA then started a rulemaking process. And Mm -hmm. ultimately, in 2008, they recommended a well-designed lap shoulder belt system for small school buses. Mm -hmm. Those are school buses that are under 10,000 pounds. And they gave the option for large school buses, which is where we had some of our challenges. Mm -hmm. They gave the option for large school buses, which is the majority of our school buses that are on the road are large school buses. Right. For a large school bus, you could either choose compartmentalization with a higher seat back mm-hmm. to give some additional protection for your larger occupants, or you could put on lap belts with that higher seat back, or you could put on lap shoulder belts, these well-designed lap shoulder belts that were required for the smaller school buses. So the good part about that is now we have performance standards in place. Mm-hmm. The bad part about it is that it's still up to whoever is buying the school bus or maybe a state or a district to make the decision on what they think is most appropriate in terms of occupant safety. And and there's a cost associated mm-hmm. with that as well. Mm-hmm. So we've always been looking at occupant protection. We have a long history of looking at occupant protection in 1999 was kind of the first time that we said something. Later on, we were talking in the Chesterfield and Port St. Lucie crashes. Mm -hmm. We gave some specific guidance that if people are going to be buying belt-equipped buses, that they should buy lap shoulder belts because that provides the best protection. Mm -hmm. Most recently in our Baltimore and Chattanooga report that came out last in 2018, Mm -hmm. that's when we went specifically to the states. We are starting to see that the regulatory environment in the states was very much supportive of lap shoulder belts on seatbelts, and we were starting to see movement there. And at that point, we felt like the states could make the decision to put to require lap shoulder belts in all new large school buses, and that NHTSA had the regulatory environment in place so that the performance of those belts would be appropriate to protect students in all crash scenarios. Mm-hmm. Chris, I know, or Cheryl, for, for some people, there's the concern of, well, what if they're children are going to be on a bus that doesn't have seatbelts? Should they still be confident that that is, you know, still safe for them? Um, I know, you know, we do talk about the cost of of seatbelts and we know that um, um, 
school buses themselves do have a pretty long use life. So it's we don't expect that a school district is going to be able to go out and, you know, before the next school year, buy a whole new fleet of seatbelt equipped school buses. So for parents that are just wanting that kind of extra reassurance or caregivers that this, the bus is still safe without a seatbelt, um, do you have any words of encouragement? Or- <laughs> sure, sure. Well, as you guys know, I am a mom. I have mm-hmm. two boys. Um, one is 12, one is 15. And they both ride the school bus to and from school. One's in middle school and one's in high school. Mm-hmm. And We don't have seatbelts on our buses in Maryland. Mm -hmm. In Anne Arundel County, Maryland does not have Mm seatbelts. So whether it has seatbelts or not, that is still the safest way for them to get to and from school. Sometimes I hear people talk, and and that's kind of what we were talking about earlier with a misunderstanding that parents think because there aren't seatbelts on there that maybe it's safer if they drive their student to and from school in their personal vehicle or maybe even worse is let the student drive themselves to and from school for like that higher age high school student. We know statistically they are safest traveling to and from school in the school bus. So Mm -hmm. words of reassurance, I think from my perspective, is that school bus travel is the safest form of transportation. Personally, Lap shoulder belts give an additional form of protection if you're in one of these very severe crashes. We know they're rare, Mm -hmm. but I think for our students, that added safety benefit is key and worthwhile. But if you're traveling to and from school and there aren't seatbelts, still go on the school bus because it's safer than traveling in a personal vehicle or having the student travel drive themselves, essentially. Sure. I'd like to travel down that road a little bit about the, we'll do a plug for for teens and school buses. Uh, I have two high school age students who ride the school bus every day in my house, and I know you have a 15-year-old, but um, just from our perspective, especially looking at, at the teen teens and teen drivers, um, they have a lot kind of going against them. They have the inexperience of driving. We're asking them to get up in the morning and go to school during hours that they've physically and biologically are should still be sleeping. So if we can give a plug for for anybody that's listening and has teens to really uh, make the school bus their their uh, yeah. their ride well, to and from school. And I don't want people to think that we're like sitting in some like glass castle here. Like we know the pressures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yes. like it, you know, yes. there's some 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 kids. There's no pressure, but some, you know, they want that easy. independence and they sure. want that I'm cool and I'm driving to school and all that. But recognizing that that there's there's added benefits because you take cars off the roadway, mm-hmm. less congestion. You know, there's all sorts yes. of stuff, but they're safest. There's, yeah. there, the, the numbers are very, very persuasive that they are safer in a school bus than driving themselves yeah. by a huge factor. What is it, like 70? Leah probably remembers. What is it, like 70 times safer? I believe it's Something, about 70 yeah, or 70, 80, yeah, 80 70 times They're 70 times more likely to get, get to school safely right. if they're traveling in a school bus than if they drive themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 70 times. Yeah. yeah. Like that's. And I would say I have a. I have a 23-year-old, and I, as a parent, I made the mistake. I was one of the parents that was like, yes, he has his license. He can drive back and forth to, to school, um, you know, in practice. And then uh, we had a crash investigation involving some some girls who went away for a weekend trip and um, some teens, and they, the driver fell asleep behind the wheel, and that completely changed my way of thinking. I It, I, it never crossed my mind. I talked to him buckling up, not using his phone, you know, not drinking and driving or getting Mm -hmm. a car, but I never thought about him being tired and fatigue Mm -hmm. um, as it related to him. And that was really 
hugely eye-opening for me and um, why I've really, you know, fight that fight with, with our, um, our younger teens now to say, you know, nope, you're going to be on the bus. <laughs> and I would think that might be an incentive for teens that they get, you know, a little extra time to sleep or even play on their phones, you know, before they get to school instead of being alert and driving. But I don't know. But I, but you bring up a good point, though, because I think we're so far we've been talking about the crash has occurred. How do we protect people? But ideally, we don't want the crash to occur at all. And I think some of the work that Cheryl has done recently is really addressing before we even get to the point of having a crash, what can we do to ensure that the school bus driver and that school bus environment is mm -hmm. the safest that it can be? Mm -hmm. yep. Do you want to share a little bit <laughs> on that? That was I mean, my lead-in. Yeah. That was my lead-in. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, great. Okay. <laughs> I, I got it down. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so one of the things that we are actually looking at is the school district and we look at the school district and how they oversee safety. Um, we want to look at how they plan their school bus routes. We want to look at how these kids are getting on and off the bus. We're looking at how we can make it not only safer for the kids, but also give a little bit more headway for the motorists to understand there's going to be a school bus on this roadway. Mm -hmm. You need to slow down. There will be children on the road. So one of the things that we look at, of course, is how the school districts are taking the responsibility for route planning, how they're evaluating the safety of their routes, how they are taking comments from outside of the school district in to include their own drivers as to what is safe and what is not safe. Mm -hmm. And then also looking at technology. Can technology help get these kids on and off the bus mm -hmm. safer? So a lot, of the, a lot of this goes on. We talk about stop arm cameras that will help people either identify problem areas or perhaps allow law enforcement to do proactive um, activities in order to reduce the number of cars illegally passing school buses. Mm -hmm. We're also looking at other technology. We're, we want to look at things such as, can the school bus actually talk to the infrastructure? Can it talk to the signs around it to, to maybe illuminate these signs to tell people, hey, guess what? There is a bus here and we are picking up kids. You need to be careful. So that's what, we're, that's what we're looking at. And the other thing that we're looking at is, of course, is how the school district is handling the root problem. And it, is, and it is an issue with roots because at this particular point, unfortunately, we have kids that are not boarding on the near side, which means they have to cross roadways. Mm -hmm. These roadways, unfortunately, are high-speed roadways. We're asking kids to cross roadways that have speeds up to 55 to 65 miles per hour. And what we have to realize is, is that there's got to be a better way of getting the kids on the bus. We absolutely know that school buses are safe. The problem is getting the kids to the bus sure. and then getting the kids off the bus. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that we've been looking at. And again, we've, we looked at it in Rochester. We also had two other investigations that we looked at which was in uh, Baldwin, uh, that was in Mississippi, and then in Hartsfield, Georgia, where the same situation occurred, 
where we have a rules a rural area. We have no additional lighting for the kids. Mm-hmm. The roadway is a 55-mile-an-hour roadway, and we have a school bus. Even though the school bus has all the warning lights on, we have drivers that still are not expecting to see children in the roadway. And that's one of the things that we have to deal with, and that's one of the, one of the issues that must be addressed. So since this is School Bus Safety Week, then I guess it's important to point out that the NTSB hasn't made any recommendations specific to loading zone type crashes. But as Cheryl's pointing out, these are all areas that are part of our investigative process, looking Mm -hmm. at Rochester and these two Mm -hmm. other crashes. Mm -hmm. And we're hoping that the NTSB will bring a report to our board sometime in 2020, hopefully earlier in 2020, and then we'll be able to address some of these key issues that she's bringing out and provide guidance to school districts and possibly to states, maybe even on the federal level, Mm -hmm. to give some additional guidance on how we can keep children safe before they even get on the school bus or when they're taking when they're getting off the school bus sure. at the end of the day because we know that the loading zone crashes often represent more fatalities than what yeah. we see on the school bus itself and mm-hmm. and many people don't recognize that nuance that their children need to be safe on the school bus but they also need to be safe getting on and off mm-hmm. the school bus and and recognition we talked at the beginning one of the reasons why school buses are so safe mm-hmm. is because they have these lights and they're bright yellow and other motorists have restrictions on when they can pass a school bus. Right. If those aren't being complied with, then obviously we're taking away one of the aspects that makes school buses safe. And particularly right now, as daylight is getting less and less, a lot of kids are getting on the bus when it's still dark and getting off the bus once it's dark. And so it's really important for motorists that are listening to the podcast um, to be very vigilant when it is, you know, kind of school ending and school starting times to be aware of their surroundings and make sure that they're being extra vigilant around school buses. Absolutely. And one of the things that they have to remember is it's not unusual for a child to have to cross the road to get on and off a school bus. Mm -hmm. So Cheryl, you mentioned technology solutions. And I think getting along the lines of trying to avoid the crash altogether. The NTSB has also talked about some key collision avoidance technologies that we see now more commonly in passenger cars. But we've also looked at those collision avoidance systems, so like forward collision, Mm -hmm. avoidance, automatic emergency braking. Um, We're also looking at other systems like stability control systems. Mm -hmm. So if you have a driver that gets into a situation where they're applying some hard steering, just like we see in passenger cars, Stability control systems can help them make a situation that may have been hard to control more controllable and hopefully avoid the crash Mm -hmm. so that we don't then have to talk about how do we protect the occupants. We want to protect them, but ideally we just don't want to have the bus crash in the first place. Right. I know we've been talking a lot about the the vehicle itself, um, but unfortunately in our, well, I think our three most recent investigations that we've brought to the board We've unfortunately seen some um, areas of concern with bus drivers themselves, and we know yes. that for the school bus industry, that that um, bus driver turnover and really kind of having enough school bus drivers for for their needs is really a, a challenge for them right now. Um, Cheryl, I know that um, Oakland comes to mind, and then um, Chattanooga, Tennessee crash, and Baltimore, Maryland um, crash that we had quite a few 
issues with physical fitness of um, the bus drivers. And if you could just talk a little bit about about that and some of our recommendations in those areas. Sure. So first, um, one of the issues that we found was that school districts were actually delegating their safety responsibility to uh, other organizations. For example, contractors that were providing school bus services for them. Or when you have a uh, school-sponsored trip and you're using an unconventional vehicle like a motor coach. And the safety that that the school system is required to give to their students should never be given to someone else. So one of the things that, that we found was that there was a problem with what happens when you're in a situation where you have a driver who is behaving poorly or driving poorly or is medically unfit. And one of the issues that we're finding is that number one, there's no, no standardized policy or procedure or a mechanism in place for people to make reporting. So what we have is people who are aware of dangerous situations, like a driver who may be medically unfit to do his job and are not reporting it or don't know how to report it. So one of the things that we looked at, and um, it occurred in Oakland, was that you had a school district, you had a supervisor, and you had coworkers that were aware that the driver, in this case, was medically was was medically unqualified to drive. He certainly could not do his job. And I guess we need to start by saying there's a difference between being medically qualified mm-hmm. and being physically or performance qualified. Mm-hmm, sure. And that's a difference because school bus drivers, one of their one of their biggest responsibilities is to assist the the students off the bus in mm-hmm. the event of an emergency. Sure. And clearly the driver in Oakland could not do that. Mm -hmm. The problem was that, number one, the school district didn't seem to have a reporting process, and they didn't have a policy as to what to do when this occurred. So no one did anything. Mm -hmm. And that's why it led to the tragedy that it did. Same thing when you talk about Baltimore. In Baltimore, you have a school system that has delegated the authority to a contractor to provide student transportation. Mm -hmm. That's fine, except for you, your contractor, unfortunately, was well aware that the driver was medically unfit. Sure. And as a result of this, this led to a tragic situation where the driver, who was known to have seizures, had a seizure while driving the school bus. Mm -hmm. Luckily, there weren't any students on board, but unfortunately, he hit into an MTA commuter bus, and he killed the driver and several passengers on that bus Mm -hmm. and seriously injured uh, passengers on that bus. Now, Cheryl, I'm going to prompt you here. Was that the first time that he had ever had a seizure while driving a bus? It was not. As a matter of fact, he had a seizure that was actually witnessed by his employer, and he also had another seizure while he was driving the bus, and the school, the, the bus aide, actually took over control of the bus and brought it to a stop before a crash occurred. His employer was, was aware of this, mm-hmm. but his employer also didn't do what they were supposed to do, which was to see that he, was, that he had a doctor who qualified him or certified that he could get back into the bus and drive again. Mm-hmm. None of that occurred. 
Also, the school district found out that the contractor wasn't even doing what they were required to do, which was also to do criminal background investigations Mm -hmm. on their drivers to see that they could legally do the job of being a school bus driver or being near kids. So I think this is where we have a hard time, is where we see situations where there could have been intervention, problems were known ahead of time, and the proper steps weren't taken. And then we come in when we see the catastrophic crash. Mm-hmm. But then looking historically, there were plenty there were of opportunities to there prevent were signs, that right. from happening. There, there were signs, there were indications, or in, you know, like you just talked about, there were extreme circumstances where this person shouldn't be driving a school bus. So I guess if we want to talk about Oakland, I guess I, I give you a little bit of a background. So this is uh, December 12th. Uh, in 2017, mm-hmm. we have a 74-year-old bus driver. Uh, he's been servicing this route for 17 years, twice a day, five days a week, on average, um, who leaves the bus barn and he goes to make his first pickup. And his first pickup is at a residence where a 16-year-old girl boards the bus. The driver backs out of the driveway, which he's been doing for 17 years, But instead of turning the bus around the roadway, the bus continues to back until it ends up into a ditch Mm -hmm. uh, across the roadway. It is a three-foot ditch, and the rear of the bus is is trapped so that the driver was unable to drive the bus out of the ditch. Unfortunately, in his attempts to drive the bus out of the ditch, uh, he starts a fire. Mm -hmm. The bus catches on fire. And as a result of that, both the driver and the student were killed. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that we looked at was the driver himself. And what we find is a gentleman for the last four months who's been having issues with his back. Now, he's had a history of back problems, but in the last four months, it became, it got worse. Mm -hmm. So he suddenly became unable to walk without the use of a cane or a walker. Mm. He suddenly uh, became unable to lift up his feet. He actually shuffled when he walked. So that also deals with his inability to be able to to correctly apply uh, the pedal pressure when you're driving a bus. Mm. You also have signs where he's having additional crashes suddenly Mm. that the school districts were well aware of. And again, these people were watching the, his medical condition deteriorate mm-hmm. and didn't do anything. Now, under, under the law, the driver is required to self-report. Mm-hmm. But we see that a lot where drivers are failing to self-report their medical disqualification. So at this particular point, this is where the school system, this is where coworkers, this is where parents, mm-hmm. this is where, where educators have to step up and do the reporting. Mm-hmm. Because if you're waiting for the driver to self-report, it's not going to happen. So let's, let's acknowledge the fact it won't happen. This needs to be reported by someone else. Mm-hmm. And no one reported it. I think this is one of those examples where you think it's going to be okay, right? Like he's been, doing, he's been doing this route forever. And he can still drive. It's just when you start talking about that physical performance test, mm-hmm. There's no way he's going to, what is it, like a 50-pound? You have to be able to move a 50-pound? Well, the the physical performance tests uh, vary between school districts. 
And we know that this school district had done away with its per, this physical performance test uh, the year before. Mm. Um, and they did not reinstitute it once they had gotten a new uh, transportation supervisor. So at this particular point, drivers were not required to do a physical performance test. The only test that they were only testing they were required to get was a medical certificate from a CMA, Mm -hmm. from a certified medical examiner. Mm -hmm. And that was it. The driver got his medical certificate and that was fine. A while ago, right? He had gotten it. He gotten it the he gotten it the year before. Okay. So all of that was all of that was fine and all of that was correct. The problem is is that now things are going wrong. Mm -hmm. He knows he's becoming unable to drive this bus. And people are actually seeing the changes in his ability to perform his job. Unfortunately, no one steps in to do anything. Mm -hmm. And at that particular point, what we have is a 16-year-old girl who's in a bus with a driver who, when the bus catches on fire, he is not only unable to do his job, to perform the duties he's required to do as a school bus driver. In the event which of an emergency. In the event of an emergency, mm-hmm. which is to assist the, the student out of the bus, mm-hmm. he can't even stand up and get himself out of the bus. Mm-hmm. And again, this was something that everyone saw happening for, for four months. There had been complaints about him, and yet nothing was done. And this is one of the issues that we're looking at driver medical qualification we and also driver performance testing mm-hmm. these drivers have to be able to do the job we ask them to do to keep the kids safe right Cheryl or, or Chris I know um, that it, this isn't unfortunately is not the first time we've seen a bus driver who's not been able to assist um, students in the event of an emergency some of them have been just that the the driver had an unexpected medical emergency while driving and just was not conscious to, to assist students. <laughs> um, for for school districts, I know a lot of times, I think it's during um, school bus safety week, or at least when I was in school, it seemed like October fall time was when you practiced your emergency evacuation drills at school. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I remember jumping off the back of the bus, you know, two or three times before we went back into the classroom. But um, when it comes to thinking of a situation where you might have a driver that in the event of emergency is not able to assist your your students, what kind of training or should there be a better training or for for students to ensure that they can get off the bus safely? I know we were talking about Oakland and I know right. that there was an issue with um, being able to open the front door of that bus as Correct. an emergency exit. Are there other things that maybe we need to ensure that... Um, that bus evacuation drills include a little bit more than just jumping off off the back of the bus? Well, by and large, most school districts are fairly good at providing um, these evacuation drills for their students. Mm -hmm. One of the problems that we saw in Oakland was the ability of students to age out of having to do the drills. The belief was that the high school students no longer needed them because they should have been exposed to it in in the lower grades. Hmm. Of course, this doesn't take into account if you transferred into the school system. The other problem is is that what most people uh, will say or what most people find is that the quickest, the easiest 
method of getting on and off a bus is the front loading door. Mm-hmm. It is probably the it is probably the choice that most of the passengers would want to make unless there's a fire or an obstruction in the front. Mm-hmm. It is also the only exit that most people don't actually practice mm-hmm. getting off the bus. Mm-hmm. And normally during these evacuation drills, you have a you have a competent, able driver that's directing the students off the bus. The question is, what happens when that driver becomes incapacitated? Can the students get off the bus? Do they know how to open the front loading door? Now, on electric-powered doors, there's a requirement by federal regulation that there is an emergency release button. Mm -hmm. No problem there. Manual doors are not intuitive. Uh, There's nothing that explains to you how they're actually supposed to work. No. And what we found is, is that when the drivers were not there to assist the students, they didn't know how to Mm -hmm. operate the manual release door. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, in Iowa, one of the uh, neighboring school districts decided to do an experiment. And what the transportation director did was tell the students to get off the bus without the assistance of the drivers. Mm -hmm. And they found the students couldn't get out the front door. This is a problem if you have a fire at the back of the bus. So this is one of the things that we had made a recommendation that in these these evacuation drills, that all exits must be must be part of the drill. Mm -hmm. The kids must know how every exit works and be able to get off the bus without the driver. So as you mentioned, we have seen the situations with the incapacitated incapacitated drivers. Mm-hmm. Anaheim, California right, is a case where that yeah. actually was the cause of the crash, where we had a driver pass out. We know that because there was an onboard video recording system. Mm-hmm. And so we could essentially watch what happened to that driver through the crash sequence. We were fortunate in that case that it was a roadway where there were people... Good Samaritans that were immediately there to assist the students, and there wasn't an event where there was some sort of post-crash fire or water or other hazard that would have inhibited them. But it's not kind of a hypothetical circumstance that this does happen, that the driver may become incapacitated either due to the crash itself or maybe something that happened pre-crash. And the other part, the other problem that we're seeing in evacuation drills deals with when the school has to use, um, what, once again, an unconventional method to transport their kids, mm-hmm. motor coaches. Mm-hmm. Now, the school allows the motor coach uh, driver to provide a pre-trip safety briefing, which is supposed to include the use of seatbelts, and emergency exits. Mm -hmm. What happens when the motor coach company or driver fails to give that pre-trip safety briefing? What we find is, is that you have kids on a bus that can't get off. Mm -hmm. We found this out in Orland in 2014, where no pre-trip safety briefing was provided, and the kids really didn't know how to get off the bus in the case of an emergency. The same thing occurred in Loxley, Alabama. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the driver was incapacitated and died. And once again, you had the kids trying to figure out how to get off the bus. One of the things about the pre-trip safety briefing also includes the use of Mm seatbelts. 
So what we found in Loxley was that several of the kids were actually thrown several dis- was thrown several rows up um, during the crash, and then were seriously injured. Now we're asking these seriously injured kids how to figure out how to get off the bus. Right. The pre-trip safety briefing would have would have dealt with both of those situations. So again, it's not just the evacuation drills on school buses. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that these, this information, this pre-trip safety briefing, has to be given any time it's a school-related transportation, no matter what you're using. It's just like on an airplane where you get the safety briefing on how to buckle your seatbelt and where the emergency exit rows are. They never skip that. It, it never has skip to that. listen to it. it Why is it different yeah. on school buses or it should, motor coaches? It should and not I think be. it's important, too, as we think about that, and you had mentioned, you know, when you were talking about uh, Oakland, um, what happens if you have students who transferred in and the first time they've ridden a school bus Mm -hmm. was when they were in high school. But we've had conversations too where we've talked about, but what about the students who get driven to school by their parents or daycare provider or who walk to school? And so you make a really good point when you talk about the importance of that safety briefing every time that you, you know, it's not just the students that ride the bus every day who happen to be part of those annual drills um, that we, we really need to make sure that all students who might be riding a school bus or a motor coach really has that opportunity to know Absolutely. how to get out safely in an Absolutely. emergency. And since you brought up aviation, I'm going to put the plug in that the NTSB has recommended that if there's a seatbelt at the position you're seated, no matter what the type of vehicle is, Mm -hmm. that you should be wearing that seatbelt at all times. So some people get confused. Do they need to wear the seatbelt in the rear seat? What about in a motor coach? What about in the school bus? Should they be wearing the seatbelt if it's available? Mm -hmm. NTSB has recommended if there's a seatbelt there, wear the seatbelt, wear it properly. And we feel like that should be something that the states can enforce. Yes. So going back to Oakland, you said that um, the driver was exhibiting some behaviors and people had noticed it. Um, and you said that some of them had even said something. Um, what, just as a person, you know, myself, if I notice something with a, with a school bus driver, what's the best way to go about um, bringing that to the attention? Who should I bring it to the attention of? Should I talk directly to the driver? How does one go about kind of raising that up as, as a potential issue? First, I would definitely say you bring it up with the school. Mm-hmm. You bring it up with the transportation director, and you also bring it up with the director of the, the, of the school district. Mm-hmm. Okay. Also, people do have the ability to make a report to the Department of Motor Vehicles when a driver is potentially medically unqualified to operate a motor vehicle. Mm-hmm. They do, in fact, have a, a medical review board, which allows them to examine and look into uh, complaints or concerns about driving. Mm-hmm. So certainly you can do that. One of the things that we are asking uh, the school industry to do is to have a policy in place. Let people know how they can do the reporting, how it's documented. Mm -hmm. There needs to be um, a finding or a disposition. And the person who made the complaint needs to be able to, should be told what the disposition to that is. Mm -hmm. So those things should be in place. But until then, certainly you have the right to go to the local Department of Motor Vehicles 
and make a report as well. Mm-hmm. And most and most of the Department of Motor Vehicles actually do allow you to make an anonymous report. Okay. Not all, but most do. Mm-hmm. We've also addressed this aspect from the medical community. Because sometimes when somebody comes in with a serious medical condition like epilepsy or something along those lines, and they're reporting it to the doctor, the doctor may not be aware that they're a school bus driver. And so some of our recommendations are targeting the medical community to try and have reminder systems of like, ask the patient what their job function is. Mm -hmm. And if you learn that you're treating somebody that just had an epileptic seizure and they're a school bus driver that there are avenues for that medical professional to be able to do the same thing that Cheryl was just talking about, report and have somebody then investigate if this could affect their driving capability. Sure. And, sir, and that's, that's another important point. What we also like to get out to um, the medical community, a lot of the Department of Motor Vehicles actually do allow doctors to report. Hmm. Most of them, it's, it's voluntary. In some states, it's actually mandatory to report. For example, you have a patient that has had epilepsy, and they've had a ep- and they've had this an epileptic seizure within a certain time period, um, and you are required to report it. Most states, it's it's optional. And one of the things that we want to put forth is is that driving is a safety sensitive occupation, mm-hmm. and if you have someone who has something that's a, a, a medically disabling illness, such as epilepsy, maybe the doctors need to talk to the Department of Motor Vehicles, make that, make that report to the medical review board. Mm-hmm. And if they're not quite sure, make the, make the case, make the report, and let the medical review board then take up the issue and let them examine it to determine whether or not this person actually should be behind the wheel. Great advice. We've talked a little bit about technology, and the one thing that we haven't talked about, surprisingly, (laughs) is um, onboard cameras, which I know have Mm -hmm. been invaluable for some of the school bus investigations that you all have done, and specifically with helping us come to the conclusion that lap shoulder belts really are um, the best kind of addition as far as safety technology for protecting students. But we've also found that... um, they can help monitor driver behavior, student behavior in some cases, because let's be honest, yeah. students on a school bus, we've all <laughs> witnessed what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, can you tell us a little bit about kind of how we, we've made recommendations in all modes for, for video cameras to record, you know, what's happening outside of a vehicle and inside. From the school bus perspective, can you talk a little bit, Chris, about the recommendations that we've made for, for that technology and, and what we think it should be used for? Yeah, so I guess there's there's a variety. As you mentioned, there's a variety of reasons why you might have a camera system on a school bus. What we're seeing in the specifically in the school bus industry is that just like you said, it's there to understand what's happening with the students. So it may be for disciplinary purposes, so something happens on the school bus and they're able to review it and see what happens. It may also be to to talk about loading onto the school bus. Mm-hmm. Parent calls up and says School bus blew by the stop. Johnny was waiting out there, and they can review and see that actually, you know, there wasn't a student there, and the bus stopped at a certain time. So there can be positive aspects to it. But as you mentioned, if you have a camera system that 
also gives you visibility of the driver, it gives you an opportunity to look at performance of the driver. And so in circumstances like Cheryl's talking about, if you do have some concerns, then if you have a camera system, you can go in and, and use that camera system to assist you in better understanding and provide an opportunity either for retraining or maybe for some additional actions. That is another way that we can look at avoiding the crash. Mm -hmm. Now, from our perspective, we think there's a couple aspects that are really key with that, looking at some of these videos that we've seen post-crash. The first aspect is that you have to have visibility of the entire school bus. Mm -hmm. Some of the videos that we looked at, even though they may have four cameras on them, may not give you visibility of all rows of the school bus. And mm -hmm. so that's important for the reasons we were talking about earlier. If you're talking disciplinary reasons and you can't see two rows of your school bus, yep. then you might be blind in that area. But it's also important when we're talking about crashes. Another aspect is to be able to see forward of the vehicle. Mm -hmm. And that's beneficial when you're talking about maybe any sort of crash or pre-crash events to understand what happened, both for the protection of the school bus, school bus driver, but also to understand the circumstances post-crash. And then we've seen some circumstances where these camera systems are installed for the purposes that we've talked about, but they haven't taken into account the full operating environment. And so maybe it's dark, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. or maybe they're operating at night and it the camera system doesn't have visibility in darkness. Mm -hmm. And so you see as long as there's daylight or as long as the bus lights are on in the interior, you have full visibility. And once those lights are out or it's dark outside, you can't see what you wanted to see in the first place. So NTSB has made some recommendations that if you're installing these systems on there, that they should give visibility throughout the bus, including the driver, forward of the vehicle, and in low light conditions as well. So again, that's just based on lessons learned from what we've looked at. We do have recommendations for recorded data. Mm -hmm. Of course, we believe that understanding what happened during a crash helps you better prevent those crashes in the future. So recorded data on all vehicles is critical. We've learned that through aviation. We look at the flight data recorder. We listen to the cockpit voice recorder. Mm -hmm. We get a very good understanding of what happened in the event of incidents, close calls, or heaven forbid crashes. Mm -hmm. That helps us to make the system safer. And we're seeing that now in the aviation industry, that we're learning from either risky situations or close calls or crashes, and we're making improvements to the system. And we think that that can be overall in all modes of transportation. If we have better recorded data, we're going to understand what happens and we can make improvements. As, as Chris said, it is invaluable when it comes to uh, safety oversight. Mm -hmm. In Chattanooga, we we were able to actually see what was going on in the bus. Mm -hmm. It also let us have a good look into the kind of behavior that was going on, not only by, by the students, but also for the driver. Mm -hmm. And it helped us to understand what happened to those kids in the crash, where they were at the time that, that the vehicle had actually left the road and had rolled over. Mm -hmm. to explain the injuries, that's what we were seeing with the kids. Certainly, it helps you document driver behavior. Other school districts are actually using their cameras to help document illegal passing of yeah. their school buses, mm -hmm. where the driver can't identify the driver or can't identify the car he saw mm -hmm. or is unable to get a license plate. They're actually taking the time and reviewing that data and passing it along in order to make their school buses safer. Mm -hmm. And not only just safer in the driver point, 
portion of it, but also safer, the whole environment being safer. So they're absolutely invaluable. Well, we are getting towards the end of our podcast time. And as Stephanie and I were joking earlier, the four of us could probably talk about school bus safety for <laughs> many hours, but uh, we're going we're gonna to stop it here. I just would like to give you two an opportunity for any final thoughts before we close out. Uh, final thoughts. Um, so I will tell you that one of the things that we've recommended is a fire suppression system on buses. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are sure that this provides an added uh, level of protection on the buses. Mm -hmm. As you know, fire protection systems, they detect and extinguish a fire Mm -hmm. before the driver even has to react. It allows the, uh, it prevents the reignition. Mm -hmm. It also can be reapplied. But the best part is it provides additional time for the safe evacuation of the occupants. Mm -hmm. So we, we definitely recommend fire suppression systems is being installed on school buses. Great. Chris? So we talked a lot about some catastrophic crashes, Mm -hmm. and that can be very scary. I just want to end with school buses are the safest way to get to and from school and school-related activities. Mm -hmm. NTSB is going to continue to look at these types of catastrophic events, crashes, other fires, events surrounding the school buses, and continue to make recommendations to make those school buses even safer. Mm-hmm. Because we just we don't believe that any loss of life is acceptable in any mode of transportation, but truly in school buses, we think we can get there. Mm-hmm. So we can get to that true road to zero. Yeah. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you. And thank you, Cheryl. And thank you, Chris. And again, thank you, James, uh, for being the great producer that you are. And I would like to offer one last final thought to my co-host, Stephanie. Sure. So we've talked about a lot of investigations and we mentioned our safety video, um, which we produced, I think, two years ago now, two years ago now, um, looking specifically at compartmentalization and seatbelt installation on school buses. So if you would like some more information on our investigations to view that video, you can visit www.ntsb.gov forward slash school buses. And that is the page where we try to keep up to date information on everything that we've released um, as it relates to improving school bus safety. Great. And again, thank you all for tuning in today and we will talk to you next time. Thank you for joining us on Behind the Scene at NTSB. Subscribe to and like us on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And don't forget, you can always find us at ntsb.gov. Thank you and bye. Bye.